0: My desire these two weeks that I have a chance uh, to teach is really to encourage you particularly in not only your relationships, but as your prayer life relates to the relationships in your life. If you recall, last week we looked at a prayer of Paul found in Ephesians 1, and I want to read that prayer to you as a reminder and then bridge into our time this morning by looking at a second prayer of Paul in Ephesians We read this in verse 15 of chapter one. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here's his request that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of him. That's his first request. He goes on to say, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And listen carefully, verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he goes on and he begins to describe the power of God at work through the life the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we recognize that there is no greater power than power over death itself. And this death, I'm sorry, this power was demonstrated by our loving Lord. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying, listen, we need to pray for the body. We need to pray for one another that all these rich, wonderful, spiritual truths are better understood, and he uses the terms wisdom and revelation, saying that you really have a deeper, richer, fuller, abiding confidence and understanding of these great truths. And we look back over the first part of the chapter where Paul rehearses all the aspects of the doctrine of salvation that have been extended to us and to whom only God can receive the glory for doing. We can't take credit for any of those things. So that same power that raised Christ from the dead has been extended to us in raising us from spiritual death. And Paul says not only that we would deepen in wisdom and and understanding of these great truths leading to a true knowledge of Christ, but that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And he uses the word hope, the hope of his calling, When we begin to pray for ourselves and pray for one another, with the intent that there's a deepening, a strengthening of an understanding of the power of God that has been displayed in the work of the gospel on our behalf, it produces in us what? Hope. Not just hope for ourselves, but hope in what God will do in others. And this completely transforms your view of relationships. As I said last week, we're prone to pray that God will fix people or just meet the needs or or help them to overcome their weaknesses and, and, and provide for them in ways that they have. And we tend to focus on just those, if you will, the external needs or those symptoms. But Paul goes right to the heart and he says, really where the work of God, the power of God is on display is in the human heart. And it relates to a comprehension of the power of God displayed on our behalf in the gospel. And as I said to you, He goes on then in chapter 2, and he begins to rehearse again. The marvelous riches of his grace demonstrate to us in Christ himself. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in the kindness and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then he goes on to rehearse that this wonderful uh, message of a gospel that portrays the riches of his grace was extended not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles. And he's writing to a Gentile church here, the Ephesian church. And when you think about what was transpiring at this time in this period in the early church, it's this wonderful recognition that God is extending the gospel through the Jews to the Gentiles. This has always been his purpose throughout redemptive history Jew first and then Gentile. And now it's coming into full fruition. And Paul's saying to the Ephesians, all those great truths that you may have only thought were going to be extended to the Jews are yours as well. And of course, that wonderful mission of God has been extended for over the last 2,000 years, reaching every nation, every tribe and tongue, until his plan is fully realized and we gather one day in heaven before the throne of Christ as his inheritance. And we will be a testimony to the power and to the grace of God of God. So Paul rehearses that in chapter 2, and then chapter 3, he begins to explain, and I was given the privilege of being an ambassador for this message to the Gentiles. This has been my calling, and I've been faithful to try to fulfill that calling and extend that message, and to see it brought to the Gentile church. And then Paul pauses again, and we come to our text this morning, and it's chapter 3 of Ephesians Verses 14 through 21, and Paul can't help but pause and issue a second prayer, that the Ephesians, and now extended to us, would understand the power of God at work in the gospel. Let's read verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Paul now bows his knee a second time in the writing of this epistle. And he prays this particular prayer knowing that in just a few moments, the words he's going to pen are going to be a call to obedience in action a call to now live out a life that reflects the power of God at work in us to be imitators of Christ, to live a godly life. But what he's recognized in his prayer and what he's asking for by way of a depth of comprehension and understanding is the power of God at work in us. That's why it's his grace. It's not something we can accomplish in and of ourselves. And so his first prayer is looking at the gospel message, the doctrine of salvation. And he's saying God alone deserves the credit for what he's done. That's why it's grace, it's undeserved. But somehow in the mystery of God's working, he moves within us to the granting of faith and the work of regeneration to allow us to understand and to receive that gospel message, to repent and experience his abundant forgiveness. But now Paul is prepared to instruct the church at Ephesus on how they're to live not just a saved life, but a sanctified life. And what he wants them to know is they can't do it in their own power either. And so this prayer is focused on how to strengthen the Ephesians to live an obedient life, a holy and sanctified life, so that God alone gets the credit. And the mystery of how he and his spirit work in us to accomplish a life, of faith and obedience. And he understands that he can't just instruct them so that this pursuit of sanctification becomes a legalistic effort. Here's all the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. He knows they won't succeed if they attempt to do this in their own power and strength. And so he models for them, not just in his private prayer life, but in his writing of this epistle, what his prayer is for them so they would understand that he's asking God to provide the same kind of power and strength that he did in the work of salvation in the very work of sanctification. You need that, don't you? I do. We stand here, if we were all to be honest, uh, probably more quick to admit our failures this last week with regard to our pursuit of obedience and holiness than our victories. Hopefully we see a pattern of progress and, and growth in our lives, and yet the more we become uh, let me put it this way, the the deeper understanding of what God expects of us and his character and his love for us, we begin to take our sin more seriously. It's an interesting dynamic. The more you grow spiritually, the more sinful you actually feel or sense about yourself. That's a good thing. If you don't think you're very sinful, that tells you where you're at on the spectrum of spiritual growth. But if you understand and, and are more sensitive to your sin, It's probable that your conscience is being shaped by the Word of God and the work of the Spirit, and you're more sensitive to it, and you take it more seriously, and you're more concerned about it. But that's the work of God in maturing us. But what you and I need is not our strength and our power to be faithful to serve Him and to love Him, but His power at work in us. And this is really the heart of of Paul's prayer. And as we look at it, we're going to see six expressions of God's power to walk in a worthy manner. This is the language Paul uses as he begins chapter four. He says, therefore, I, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What does it mean to be worthy? To walk in a manner that's consistent with your calling. We've been called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to be those who imitate him. So to live a life that's consistent with that calling means we actually have to practice what we preach. And so Paul's saying, now I'm going to instruct you how to to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But before he gets there, he provides this wonderful example of a prayer that gets at the heart of the power that we need to do so. So six expressions of God's power to walk a worthy life. It's interesting though, before we go further into this, I want you to be mindful that if you go fast forward 30 years from the writing of this epistle, you find yourself reading Revelation chapter 2, verses one through seven. And there John is commenting on the church at Ephesus. And what does he say about them? They've left their first love. Paul here is praying and he is writing to remind this church of the work of God on their behalf. In essence, his prayer is focused on what should be their first love. It's the love of Christ for them. And that should empower them and strengthen them in all that they do. And so as we studied this prayer this morning, and we know that 30 years later, even this church drifted away from their first love we have to be cognizant that we too are prone to to make that same mistake. I don't know where you're at today as you evaluate your spiritual life, but can you honestly say that your first love is Christ and you rest above all truths in his love for you? Is that what preoccupies your thinking? Is this what governs your motivations for, for life and service? If it's not, or not wholly the case, then this prayer Can be our prayer this morning for ourselves and for one another. The first expression of God's power to walk a worthy life is found in verse 15. Here we see the essence of power. Paul says, In praying to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, he recognized that this power comes from God Himself. This is power that is uh, derivative; it comes from God directly. And why is this necessary? Because we don't possess this power in and of ourselves. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses nine through through ten, that it's in our weakness that His strength is perfected. On how many occasions did Paul have to confess his own weakness and his own inability, being the chiefest of sinners? If you want to talk about what Paul's self-esteem was, it certainly wasn't self-esteem with regard to his own abilities. He had this amazing understanding of the glory and power of God himself in contrast to his utter sinfulness. And so in this prayer, he begins by simply acknowledging that same truth. Listen, if we're going to experience the power to live a holy and sanctified life, it does not come from us. And so he directs his prayer to God, our Father, who is the originator of all power, all spiritual power. That's point number one, the essence of power. Second of all, we see the endowment of power, and this is verses 16 through verse 17a. And here we encounter his first request. His first request is this, that he, God, would grant us to be strengthened with power, according to his riches. Now let's break this down just a moment. So request number one, that he would grant us to be strengthened with power. Well, we asked the first question, how is he to do this? He says it's according to the riches of his glory. I don't know about you, sometimes you have a need that you face and you view God as kind of a miser. He kind of doles it out just enough to keep us dependent and tethered to him. And of course, he answers our prayers with his infinite wisdom. But what Paul's saying here is, I'm coming to the Father who has the power and the glory that's characterized by riches, by treasure, by wealth, abundance. And he repeats this phrase several times. We saw it in Ephesians 1, verse 7. And then we saw it in verse 18. We see it in chapter 2. I read it to you about the surpassing riches of his grace. He says in Philippians chapter four, verse 19, that he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And he repeats this again in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. So this theme of the riches of God's glory is consistent in Paul's writings. This is his primary view of God's ability to meet any need, And answer it according to our request. And this phrase, according to his riches, expresses two things both the source (laughs) of the power that he'll request and the scale of his ability to answer this request. The source and the scale. When we go to prayer, we need to go to prayer in faith that God is capable, fully capable to answer this prayer for aid, for strength, and for power. God is not miserly. I'm going to put it this way to you. Who do you think wants you to be holy more, you or God? So why would God withhold his strength and power if you seek him to that end? He wants to provide what we need, but he needs us to come to us in dependence and in recognition of our weakness. And so Paul prays and asks that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to what? To be strengthened with power. Strengthened with power here is a reminder that we can do all things, according to Paul in Philippians 4.13, through whom? Through him who strengthens us. We can see the same thought if you turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians. By the way, Paul authored the letter of Colossians. At the same time, he authored the letter of Ephesians. So we see very similar themes and, and language. But let's read Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. It's a prayer as well at the outset of this epistle. And verse 9, chapter 1 says, "'For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, "'we have not ceased to pray for you "'and to ask that you may be filled "'with the knowledge of his will.'" in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Sound familiar? Very similar. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now pay attention, verse 12. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so again, in this epistle to the Colossians, Paul repeats, almost using the same language, this recognition and prayer that strength and power come from God himself. Now, where does he want to see the strength worked out? It's in our inner man. And so Paul goes on, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 3. He wants the riches of his glory to strengthen us with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And so we have to contend, first of all, with this truth principle here that the instrument of our strengthening is the Holy Spirit himself that abides with us, who dwells within us. It's through the active work of his spirit that this power is enabled within us. Go back with me at John chapter 14. We looked at this text last week briefly, but I want to just mention it again. John chapter 14. Listen to the role of the Holy Spirit according to Christ himself. Verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This is a promise of Christ's return, but until he returns, he gives to us the deposit, the down payment of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within us. Now when we consider the Holy Spirit's work the term that is used for his work and role is is paraclete. And this word describing the Holy Spirit means one who comes alongside to help. And that's what Paul's referring to here. He says, the Holy Spirit resides within you. And so my prayer to the Father is that he will provide strength of power through his abiding Holy Spirit, where? In your inner man. Again, the focus is not necessarily on your behavior alone, the externals. It's on the seat of our heart. That was Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, right? That the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Here he's using the term the inner man. This is a term he uses in Romans 7, verse 22. He says, therefore, I joyfully concur with the law of God where in the inner man, but I struggle with the flesh. And so the battle that must be won where the power has to be applied to grant victory in our life towards holy living is in the inner man, which is really the seat of what? Our conscience, our intellect. That's why in Romans chapter 12, Paul says to us that we need to what? Be transformed. And how do we do that? By the renewing of our mind. It's the way that we think, okay? Truth has to come to bear, enabled by the Holy Spirit, Bring conviction, faith, and then power to live out a godly life. All this is available to us through the work of God. Here's the thought for you to carry home today. His power becomes your power. You meditate on that for a moment. You tired of pursuing the Christian life in your own strength? I have good news for you. You don't need to. You can't do it. But what God is willing to extend to you is the power that you need to honor him, to obey him, to glorify him. And that power is made available to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, with regard to this request, Paul goes on to say what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not only do do we have the Father providing the power and strength through the instrument of the Holy Spirit, but that Christ himself is at work in our lives? What an amazing thought. Again, back to our text of John 14, we know that Christ describes his commitment to us to abide with us, and then he calls us in chapter 15 to do what? To abide in him. What you need to understand is being stated here in Paul's prayer in this first request, is he's recognizing that all the resources of the entire Trinity are available to us. God's on your side. Father, Son, and Spirit. Have hope. Have hope. Okay? The one who granted us power over death Spiritual death has raised us in newness of life, according to Romans chapter 6, is one who continues to work in us, enabling us to grow in godliness. Where does he do this work? As I said, in your hearts, in the inner man. This is where genuine spirituality has to begin. And then he goes on to say that this is accomplished through the work of faith. Now, do you generate faith on your own? Anybody get up this morning and just say, I got it. I got it figured out. I know the formula for faith. If I do this, this, and this. No. Faith is gifted to us. We know that for the work of salvation in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For it's by grace that we're saved. It's the gift of God. And what Paul's recognizing here as well is that God needs to gift us the faith to actually now live out the Christian life. And this is his prayer. How do you pray for those in your life? Do you just pray that God would fix them? Or maybe a general prayer that they would just have victory in their life or just overcome sin? We need to pray for one another. But imagine if our prayers were consistent with Paul's prayer. Theologically sound. Praying that God would gift faith to recognize our dependence and our need. The same God who saves us is the same God who can sanctify us. He's on our side. And so Paul provides for us a wonderful example of how we can pray for one another. The third point I want to make this morning is what I'm calling the establishment of power. It's found in verses 17b and through verse 19. And here we see Paul's second request, the establishment of power. And the second request is this, that he would make us able to comprehend and know the love of Christ. So his first request is that he would strengthen us with power through his spirit in the inner man. And the second request is that he would make us able to comprehend and know the love of Christ. This is amazing. So let's break it down and look at it carefully. We see there in verse 17b, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He says, first of all, that we would what? Be rooted and grounded in love. Now, he uses two specific terms here. One's an agricultural term, talking about being rooted in an understanding of the love of Christ. And the second is an architectural term. Describes here being grounded or, or laying a foundation, a stable foundation that undergirds the construction of a building. Now, we know both these terms. We're familiar with them from different aspects of Scripture. You might think of Psalm chapter 1. Those of us who meditate, the godly man, on the word of God, so we're uh, consistently fed on, on the nutrients of God's word, will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose deeps go deep, deep into the soil and are constantly having access to the nutrients that come from God's flowing word in our life. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a mighty tree that bears its fruit in its own season. There's a great promise for us, right? And so Paul's using the same kind of imagery to say that when we really comprehend the love of Christ, when it controls us, it dominates our thinking and our perspectives. We will be strengthened like that root system and begin to pr- produce the fruit that God wants us to produce. The second term, the architectural term, we might recognize from a text such as 1 Peter chapter 2 that describes that Christ is the cornerstone and that he, through our lives, are building up on that cornerstone a holy temple for his service, that we might bring glory and worship to him through our lives. Those of you who might be familiar with construction or, or at least uh, sites like the um, Pantheon um, in Athens, Greece, Parthenon, excuse me, the Parthenon, that mighty temple that sits there on the Acropolis overlooking the city of Athens. You've probably seen images of this. And if you look at an individual standing there by the Parthenon, you'll see that the scale of this is massive. And yet you look at the precision with which the Parthenon was constructed using that early technology. And if you talk to anybody who's studied the design of that, they'll tell you the most important part of that temple is the cornerstone. Because the measurements had to be absolutely exact. And this is the language that Peter is using. He says Christ is the cornerstone of the truly Christian Life, the holy sanctified life. He was perfect. He was exact. And now, as we line our lives up in accord with Him, life upon life upon life, we're like a temple that's constructed on that cornerstone. And so, what Paul's saying is we need to understand who Christ is, how He lived, and specifically how He loved and align ourselves with that as our exact model. And so he says we need to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. He goes on to say we need to comprehend the expansive love of Christ. And, and, and the Greek language here is actually saying that we need to be strengthened to actually comprehend. Why? Because God's love, Christ's love, particular is just so unfathomable. We can't comprehend how perfect it is. And so there's a little bit of a paradox here. He's saying we have to align our lives with the knowledge of the love of Christ, but we're even weak to comprehend that. So we have to come back to God and look to him to provide the strength and the ability to understand this. Reminds us that we are not God and that God alone is all-wise, all-knowing, all loving. Think about what Job declares in chapter 11, verse 8. He says, Can you discover the depths of God or the limits of the Almighty? What's he expressing in that moment? The limited nature of man. Okay? We are not God, never will be. But through the testimony of the Spirit of God within us, as we look at the example of Christ's love, we can mature, we can grow in our ability to understand his character and his love. Now he goes on to emphasize this when he talks about the breadth, the length, the height, and depth. And this phrase, taking all four terms uh, together, is really a reference to the vastness of Christ's love for us. Why is that important that we understand this? Because it humbles us humbles us in a variety of ways. One, we're inferior in our ability to love like Christ loves. Second of all, it not only humbles us, but it should increase our gratitude for the way that we've been loved. The deeper we comprehend the love of Christ and the facets of its perfection, yes, it provides an example for us, but it also should bring us great joy because we're the object of that love. And Paul goes on to say that in comprehending and knowing the love of Christ, we need to do that in the context of all the saints. Why is that important? Because it's really in the outworking of the love of Christ in our own relationships, in the body itself, we see the vastness. We see the complexities. We see the expressions of it multiplied. And Paul knows that. This is God's purpose for his church. Is this not what John writes in 1 John? How will the world know that we are followers of Christ? It will be by the love that the church demonstrates towards one another. That's why I commended you when we first began this morning. We see your love for one another. This is why Paul begins his prayer in Ephesians 1 with what? I don't cease to give thanks. Okay, He knows it's in the context of the body and the relationships comprised within the church that we see the love of Christ demonstrated. And so he includes that here in his prayer, that we'd experience this with all the saints. And then as we come to what he says specifically in verse 19, and this is really, I think, the heart of the text, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Wow. What an amazing thought. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8 with me again. Pointed to this a few times, but I want you to just follow along in the text. Verse 26 begins in recognizing the work of the Spirit. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he searches the hearts and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of god we can take comfort right there we not we may not be faithful to pray according to the example of the apostle paul but the spirit of god is actively at work interceding because of our weaknesses What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who digests, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who what? Loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now you think about Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 and then read what he writes in Romans 8. The spirit of God is interceding on our behalf. Christ is interceding on our behalf. And then he names out really any kind of trial or suffering or difficulty that we might face in this life. And then he applies the height and depth and breadth of Christ's love for us to that. And he says it surpasses it all. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Impossible. Not possible. It's secured. And it's available to us. Friends, have hope. Have hope not just for yourself, but for those in your life who claim the name of Christ and those who one day he will draw unto himself. Be prayerful that God will be at work to to enable those in your life to comprehend the love of Christ. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on the Ephesians, says this, this petition by Paul is remarkable. For although the apostle has said much in chapters one through two about his readers being in Christ, he assumes that they do not adequately appreciate Christ's love. Also, God's almighty power is needed to grasp its dimensions. Hence, he prays for power to enable them to understand how immense it is. This is not a petition that they may love Christ more. Listen, this is not a petition that they may love Christ more, however important this might be. Rather, it's a petition that they might understand Christ's love for them. Further, their grasping this cannot be simply a mental exercise. Clearly, it is personal knowledge, and although it undoubtedly includes insight into the significance of God's love and the plan of redemption, it cannot be reduced simply to intellectual reflection. Paul wants them to be empowered so as to grasp the dimensions of that love in their own experience. The love of Christ we're talking about is his love for us. That's what we need to deepen our understanding. Alexander Strauch, in his book, Leading with Love, comments on this text in this way. He says, in a profoundly revealing passage of scripture, Paul discloses the single, driving, motivating force of his life. It's consistent with what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Please note, Strauss says, that Paul is not speaking about his love for Christ, but about Christ's love for him. Understanding the love of Christ is so essential to Christian living that Paul, in one of his most significant prayers in the Bible, prays that God would empower all believers to grasp the vast, incomprehensible nature of the love of Christ. And although it surpasses knowledge, the love of Christ is something we are to grasp not only intellectually, but experientially, personally, and intimately. Have you meditated on the love of Christ? in all the facets that Scripture reveals, and then understood that it is extended to you individually and personally? If you do, then this text in 1 John will be clearly understood by you. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Understand the correlation? The more you comprehend the facets of Christ's love and, and the way that they're demonstrated to us, it then enables you to put that same qualitative aspect of love, manner of love on display towards those in your life? If you don't understand the love of Christ, how can you possibly begin to imitate him in your relationships? If you think your relationship with God and Christ is based on performance, guess how you're going to treat everybody else in your life? If you don't understand grace and what's been lavished upon you, that you don't deserve it, you didn't earn it, you didn't merit it, how can you possibly demonstrate that kind of loving grace towards those in your life? So what Paul understands is for the church to be the church and to put Christ on display, we have to understand the love of Christ. And this is where the homework comes for you and I. We have to examine in our own heart, our own way of thinking, do we understand Christ-like love? Have we studied it? Have we begin to edit out of our lives all those false means of love that maybe we've learned by poor examples in our own life or we've adopted by the world's values or standards or because of our own sinful, proud priorities? Have we brought all of that and surrendered it to the Lordship of Christ? Have we fought to edit out unbiblical thinking, adopted biblical thinking about the love of Christ and are committed to maturing in it, if we do, then we are now positioned to demonstrate that towards others. If we do not, we have nothing to draw upon. We substitute for the love of Christ the world's standards of love. And then what we do is, is we fail to put Christ on display. And so our witness itself is limited and compromised. If we live in relationship with one another based on performance and keeping accounts, and yet we want to go out and declare the grace of God available in the gospel, but they don't see that demonstrated in our life, to understand the problem that that presents in our gospel witness, people will just assume, well, if you know him, but it's all about performance and keeping accounts and working hard to keep, preserve or keep people's affections and love, then that must be part of Christianity as well. But when they taste in their relationship with you, (laughs) what is undeserved, extended to people who are truly sinners, and you extend forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion and kindness in the way that it's been extended to you and I, and then they say, who is this God you know? Tell me about him. And you lay the gospel out. you say, I am no different than you. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God alone. Friends, we have got to be instruments of God's grace in our human relationships. And why Paul is praying that we understand and comprehend the love of Christ is it's essential then for us to realize what he wants to accomplish. And this is found in our next point, the extent of power. At the end of verse 19, go back with me, Ephesians chapter three. Paul says here in the text that if we comprehend the love of Christ and we're empowered by God himself through his spirit to understand it, the outcome is that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What does he mean to be filled up? Well, this is a language of being made complete. We see Paul uses in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in us will what? Will be faithful to to finish this work, to complete the task. And this idea specifically of of fullness is a reference to the character of God himself being shaped and formed in us. John says in chapter one, verse 16, for of his fullness we all have received. What he's saying there is we see Christ demonstrate the fullness of God. And first John chapter four, John writes again, no man has seen the Father, but his love is perfected in you, meaning that we will display the fullness of God in the way that we love one another. Christ said it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, You are to be perfect, complete, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the work that God intends to accomplish. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1:15. 1, We are to be like the Holy One who called us. He says, be holy then yourselves. This is the standard. And this is our hope that God will perfect us so that we might demonstrate the character of God among ourselves. Later in chapter 4, verse 24, he says that we are to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Tremendous, tremendous promise here. And so it speaks of the extent of the power of God at work in us to bring us to a place of completion where we may literally be described as the fullness of God, his moral character being demonstrated in us. Now quickly, let's look at these last two aspects. He goes on in verse 20 to speak of the expanse of power, the expanse of power. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Well, let's just consider that for a moment. Paul begins to layer on the superlatives, describing how God is capable of accomplishing this. Now to him who's able to do far more what? Abundantly. This means immeasurably, or the, or the Greek term here actually means super abundantly. Again, God is not miserly, He's not limited in his capacity. He's unlimited. And so his power at work in us can be equal to his own ability. Says he will do this in a manner that's beyond all that we ask or think. That's that's difficult for us to even comprehend. Why? He says it's beyond what we can pray for. Whatever we ask for, God can do more and desires to do more than that. And it's beyond... Our imagination or our ability to even consider and comprehend. This is the expanse of God's power. Matter of fact, he goes on to say it's according to his power. That means it's equal to his power. And so Paul uses these three terms to remind us that this is how God is at work in us and the extent of his ability. The last aspect of power that we want to look at is the effect of power. The effect of power. As a result of God maturing us in the love of Christ that then is fleshed out in our own relationships, displaying the fullness of God. He says, then as a result of this, he will be glorified. This is the final effect. To him, verse 21, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God will be glorified in our lives. God will be glorified in Christ. And this glory will extend for all eternity, for all generations to come. Did I mention that you should have hope? Not just hope for today or tomorrow, not just hope for this life, but hope for all that awaits us because of this wonderful, unlimited power of God that Paul prays would be extended on our behalf. Now you understand what he means when he says according to his glorious riches. The idea of riches, of course, is contrasted with what? Our poverty. And we will serve God because of the riches of his power and his strength that will make up for all of our limitations, our weaknesses, and inabilities if we come to him and depend upon him. Now lastly, note that Paul offers this great truth in the context of a prayer. And so Paul models for us also, not even these great truths, but the posture of dependency. What does he say? For this reason, I I bow my knee. It's a posture of humility. It's a, a posture of dependence and friends, this is exactly where we find ourselves. If we will bow our knee and we will ask God to work in this fashion in our lives and on behalf of others, then we can't expect that in his time and in his purpose, that strength through his spirit, as his spirit intercedes and Christ intercedes, will be made known to us in our own lives. Yes, we can be people of hope. We must be people of hope. Let me close this in our own time of prayer. Father, we just quiet our hearts before you this morning. What we've just looked at is truly beyond our comprehension. And yet, when we contemplate how Christ loved us, undeserving, living with a darkened understanding, no ability to draw near to you or or to pay uh, the price for our own sins, and yet you pursued us. You provided a means that we might be forgiven. You raised us to newness of life. All this is a credit to you. And now we face the reality that we need to grow to be like Christ. And so we pray like the Apostle Paul that you would strengthen us in our understanding of his love through your power and your spirit. And may it be true of our lives and those we love that we pray for that we would demonstrate the fullness of you and in so doing, put you on display for a lost and needy world, bringing you the glory that you alone deserve. This is our hope, our expectation. We give thanks to you, and we pray that you would hear our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.